Well, it's a real privilege to be able to come and share one more message that relates to what we've talked about in the previous three messages that I've had the chance to preach here. I didn't, get the, I didn't anticipate having this opportunity, and so it really gives us a chance to take a practical look at what it means to wait on God as demonstrated, in my opinion, in one of the most exciting stories in the Old Testament, in 1 Kings chapter 18. But before we get there, I want to just share a few details with you that I think might help us as we step forward into the, into the message this morning. One is that there are sermon notes, but those are also discussion notes for Wednesday. We invite you to come on Wednesday. We have a fun time talking about what was shared before, and better than just a fun time, we actually have an opportunity to go a little bit deeper with the things that we learned on Sunday morning. You know, one of the hardest things, uh, one of the easiest things maybe, uh, switch it around, look at the other way, one of the easiest things to do is to hear things on a Sunday morning and to do nothing about it. I mean, at least it's one of the easiest things for me. Maybe not for you, but I really can have the Word of God literally go in one ear and out the other without hardly making any contact with my soul. Can you, can you do that sometimes? I mean, don't raise your hands. But Wednesday night's an opportunity for you to actually say, maybe this needs to take root in my soul in a little deeper way. So save those notes if you can, because they're also the same notes that we'll be using on Wednesday night. On the back of that, you'll notice there's also... Um, a meditation, really, while you're waiting, worship. We're going to be talking about waiting again. That's, the, that's one of the key concepts in 1 Kings chapter 18. Don't read that during the service, uh, please. But uh, you may read it afterwards and see if maybe that strikes a chord with you and if you might think of uh, how this, these ideas of worship while you're waiting applies in your life. Two other things that didn't make it in time for the release of this PowerPoint that I'd like to just mention. One is I'd like to just remind you about where we've been in Isaiah chapter 40 for the previous three messages, just enough to give you kind of a toehold, a cliff notes version of where we're going to be going as we look at this exciting story in 1 Kings chapter 18. So first of all, you remember that in Isaiah chapter 40, we have an amazing picture of God. We called it an anthropomorphism, a number of anthropomorphisms. Things like God measures the waters of the world in his hand. How much water is in the Pacific Ocean? We said it's 187 quintillion gallons, and since there is no one who can dispute that fact, we'll take it for granted. Uh, I haven't measured it. I don't know anyone else who's actually measured it. I guess they've done some calculations. This is a great God who can measure in his hand the waters of the world. So we have a great God. That's the first thing we learn in Isaiah chapter 40. He is a great God worthy of praise, and worship. But the second thing we learned is really significant, and it begins in verse 27 as the people of Israel, facing coming judgment, say, sure, it's great to have a great God, but my way seems to be hidden from the Lord, and my right is disregarded by my God. And God answers and says, have you not heard, verse 28 of chapter 40, have you not known the Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth, he does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. What God is saying to us is not only am I a great God, a God who can do anything, who measures the waters of the world, who blows on the rulers of the earth, who considers the nation as nothing and less than nothing. I'm not just a great God. I'm a God who is directly concerned for you. So we said he's our Emmanuel. This almighty God is also our Emmanuel. And then he concludes in Isaiah chapter 40 with what we do 
about that great reality. If this is the Almighty God, and he is, if he is our Emmanuel, and he is, then it only is right that we should wait for him. And that's where we're going to begin the message this morning in 1 Kings chapter 18. Let's bow for prayer, and we'll dive right into this exciting story. Heavenly Father, we ask that by your Spirit, you would speak to us in this moment, really just a few moments that we'll share together around your word, hearing about a story that took much longer to execute than it will take for us to discuss it this morning. Please, please guide us. Please lead us as we consider the truth of your word this morning. Amen. So 1 Kings chapter 18, if you want to turn there, that's where we're going to be for the most of this message this morning and some of the passages directly surrounding it. 1 Kings chapter 18 is a high point in the nation of Israel's history. A lot of times we associate history with epic battles, particular situations. So for example, if I said to you, Civil War, what would you say? There's probably a battle that would stand out in your mind. Gettysburg. And why do we think of Gettysburg? Because in two minutes and 271 words, President Abraham Lincoln summed up what it means to be devoted to one's country and to love with a love that was even willing to pay the ultimate price. Two minutes, 271 words, Gettysburg. Not even because of the battle itself, but because of what was said about it. Uh, another really key battle that you'll recognize right away, if I say the word Napoleon, what comes to your mind? Waterloo, exactly, it's Waterloo. And that's unfortunately the exact opposite kind of battle that we like to think about. Waterloo stands for total defeat, as the Duke of Wellington fought against the French military genius and totally defeated him, signaling the end of the Napoleonic era. So it stands like a signal in the whole course of that particular section of history. Uh, there are other things that we could think about, other battles that we could consider that might be be worth evaluating. Um, what about, like, if I said Texas? Other than Houston and the current battle against water, what stands out when you think of Texas? The Alamo. Remember the Alamo. And we remember the brave Texans who fought there and set a standard for the Lone Star State, which thinks it's a nation, and, um, and for the rest of us who also can look and learn from bravery on the battlefield. If I said Jericho, you're going to think about the walls falling flat under the commanding leadership of Joshua. These things stand as kind of high points in human history as defined by particular battles. This morning, we're going to look at another battle that really stands as a high point in the Old Testament. And if I say the word Elijah, you think what? You think of fire? Right. You do think of fire. That's right. You do think of fire. What else do you think of? Why, where was the fire? Mount Carmel, exactly. So you think about a contest that occurred on Mount Carmel with 450 prophets of the false god Baal and one man of God. That's what the story is. That's the high point. But it's interesting, and what we're going to look at this morning is that that battle, which took place on the top of Mount Carmel, was really a sub-story to a much greater story a story with a battle that was much bigger in its scope. And so I want to show you this morning where that story begins. Because if you looked back at chapter 17, 
you find that it says in verse 1, Now Elijah the Tishbite of Tishbe and Gilead said to Ahab, by the way, this is the grand introduction to this great character, Elijah. That's it. You just got it. Elijah the Tishbite of Tishbe and Gilead said to Ahab, here's what he said. As the Lord God of Israel lives before whom I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. What followed were three and a half years of total drought. And when I say total drought, I mean total drought. Notice, there would be no rain, but there would also be no dew. No precipitation. Just, just for comparison, a local weather station said that it's been, get this, I know we're suffering here, 27 days since we've had measurable precipitation. And during that time, we've had quite a bit of dew, right? And my yard is turning brown. Three and a half years, guys. This is a picture of my ground right now uh, in one area of my garden. It's cracking open. I live in the clay out west of Ferndale here. And when it gets dry, it cracks and separates. Now, think of what it would be three and a half years with no rain and no dew. Now, this comes as a direct judgment from God. So you can hear that this is the great prophet Elijah confronting the king of the nation of Israel, Ahab. And he says, there won't be any rain, there will be no dew except if I say so. And then these three and a half years. Now, it came as a judgment in particular because of the downward spiral of the nation of Israel at this point in time. So Ahab's father's name was Amri. Amri, it says in the text, was the most evil king to rule to date. Now, by the way, remember, there were no good kings in the divided kingdom of Israel. No good kings. There wasn't any good king. And they all followed the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who caused Israel to sin. It says over and over and over if you read the book of Kings. So they all followed. And by the way, what was the sin of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who caused Israel to sin? He made two golden calves, one in Bethel and one in Dan, and he instituted a faulty worship, a broken system of worship, in fact, really casting us all the way back in one sense to the golden calf incident in Mount Sinai, right? So he instituted something that looked a whole lot like the paganism around him, and it was really bad. And Amri followed that same pattern, but he was even more evil, and we're not told exactly why or how, but he was even more evil than the kings who had preceded him. So the kings before were bad, he was worse. But get this, Ahab, his son, was more evil still. In that, he added to the sin of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat. He continued to worship the calves, but he did something else. He began to bring in the worship of the false god, Baal. And, in particular, he married a Sidonian princess by the name of Jezebel. And so, between the unholy alliance with Jezebel and the the uh, worship of Baal that he brought in, and the Asherah, which is, so, so Baal is like the male divinity for fertility, and the Asherah was a, the female uh, form of the same. And so before, between bringing these two things in, it actually says that Ahab was the most wicked still. It says in verse 31 of chapter 17, and as if it had been a light thing for him, Ahab, to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, he took for his wife Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbaal, 
king of the Sidonians, princess then, and went and served Baal and worshipped him. He erected an altar for Baal, verse 32, in a house of Baal, which he built in Samaria, and Ahab made an Asherah, the female version. Ahab did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel. Listen, more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger than all the kings of Israel who were before him. This is a bad dude, guys. And God said, judgment must come. So at the word of Elijah, which was the word of the Lord, he said, no dew, no rain, except by my word for the years to come. And it lasted three and a half years. Now, this began an interesting study in the life of Elijah. Again, we don't even meet Elijah in the book of 1 Kings until we're just told, out of the blue, here comes Elijah, the Tishbite. He announces to Ahab this, this proclamation of drought and famine. But now we get to learn a little bit more about him. What does his life look like? And one of the things that's really important to remember is that when God judges a people, God's people are not necessarily exempt. And Elijah wasn't exempt either in this case. You, you may remember in the book of Jeremiah that the prophet Jeremiah faced a similar fate. The people of God were told, don't go down to Egypt. And they did what? Exactly what they were told not to do, of course. They went down to Egypt, and guess what? Jeremiah got to go with him and experience all the judgment of God in that place. Now, he was protected, and God protects us in unique ways. And here we find that God protected his servant Elijah in unique ways, but he too went through the drought. It was a drought not only in that area, but it was a drought in the neighboring vicinities. It was a very severe drought, and Elijah got to partake of it. So one of the first things that we find during these three and a half years in the life of Elijah is that he... He had to find a source for water and food just like everybody else. And so God sent him to the brook, which probably correctly pronounced is Kareth. But since we're going to anglicize it this morning, you can call it Kareth or Cherith. Because uh, we'll be too strange sounding to sound real Hebrew. And so at the brook Cherith. And you remember what happened at the brook Cherith, right? He was fed by ravens. And he drank the water of the brook until something kind of bad happened in his life. And that is that the brook dried up, right? So at that point in time, God said, I want you to go and meet with the widow at Zarephath. Now, this is a fascinating reality. Uh, this widow at Zarephath didn't live in Israel. In fact, you'll find that the New Testament, Jesus actually cites this widow as a very, in fact, the people were really mad when he cited this, by the way, if you look at the Gospels. They were really upset because this widow lived outside of the parameters of the nation of Israel, and God chose to bless her, who was a foreigner, a Gentile. In fact, she wasn't just a Gentile. She was a Gentile who, get this, who was from Jezebel's territory. Yeah, that's where God sent Elijah, his man. And in one sense, what better place to hide than right in the heart of the enemy camp, right? So, so he went to the widow of Zarephath. And you remember what happened there is that God provided for him, and in fact, also for the widow, through a jug of flour and a jar of meal, or a jar of water that never failed. So the more she would make from that flour, and the more that she would make from that water, it just kept coming. So it just never dried up. They kept having plenty of water and plenty of food. But she was really at the point of death at the time that he went there. So even the neighboring surrounding areas were all affected by this drought. And then you find that, that uh, we, find, we hear one more interesting story about, uh, about this uh, great prophet Elijah when the widow's son dies. So if you look here at the, at the um, conclusion of chapter 
17, you find this story. It says that the son of the woman, the mistress of the house, verse 17, became ill. And his illness was so severe that there was no breath left in him. And she said to Elijah, what have you against me, O man of God? You have come to me to bring my sin to remembrance and cause the death of my son. And he said to her, give me your son. And he took her, him from her arms and carried him up into the upper chamber where he lodged and laid him on his own bed. And he cried this to God, O Lord my God, this was his prayer, O Lord my God, have you brought calamity even upon the widow with whom I sojourn by killing her son? And then he stretched himself upon the child three times and cried to the Lord, O Lord my God, let this child's life come into him. Again, and the Lord listened to the voice of Elijah. So chapter 18, as it opens, is in the context of a man of God who prays and whose prayers are heard. I mean, there are not very many illustrations in the entire Bible of people being raised from the dead. This is one of them. This is one of them. In which God raised someone from the dead at the request of a man. This is just... A man, this is not divinity. This is a man who is interacting with God and praying for something that is unfathomable, that's really quite unreasonable. And God heard him. He listened to his prayer and answered him. And so with that, we find that we are, uh, we launch right into chapter 18. And an amazing, again, 18 is where we hear the story that we always think of as this epic climax battle on Mount Carmel, 450 prophets of Baal, the prophet of God, and fire from heaven. We will hear that this morning, but I want you to understand it's in the context of God's judgment on people who really deserved his judgment, and of a prophet who in the middle of that judgment prays. A prophet in the middle of judgment who takes his cares his concerns, and his needs to God. So in chapter 18, verse 1, we find that after many days, the word of the Lord came to Elijah in the third year, saying, go, show yourself to Ahab, and I will send rain upon the earth. Now, think again, if you were one of these people, it hasn't rained, it hasn't even had dew on the ground for three and a half years, and you're going to go tell the king, the king that hates you, that there's going to be rain. But interestingly enough, what Elijah does first is not go tell Ahab that there's going to be rain. By the way, this is a picture of Mount Carmel. And um, Mount Carmel is actually a division line between the coastal route on the Mediterranean Sea and this Jezreel Valley, which is a lush, rich valley, at least for that part of the world, probably not quite like the northwest. And down at the southeastern bottom of the Jezreel Valley, it doesn't show on this map, is the town of Jezreel, which at the end of the story you find that Ahab runs back to. It's probably a fortress uh, city for him. And uh, he ran back to Jezreel, and you'll remember the story that Elijah actually outran him the distance from Mount Carmel down to Jezreel. It's about 17 miles, long way to run. Not quite a marathon, but if you're faster than horses, that's okay. So he was, uh, he was, he was really fast that day, running from Mount Carmel and down this is the ridge, Mount Carmel Ridge, that runs between the Jezreel Valley and the Mediterranean Sea. 
Mount Carmel itself is about 1,724 feet high. Not a real high mountain by Northwest standards, but it was big enough to provide a very difficult obstacle to people wanting to, to go over the top of it or to get by it. You really needed to go around it, and that's what they would do. They would go around it on either side and then probably through a few of the passes here. But it's here on this mountain that, this, uh, that Elijah calls for a contest. So he goes not to show himself and just immediately tell Ahab God is going to send rain, but instead to say, let's deal with the problem from which the rainlessness came. Kind of important. It'd be a little bit like someone coming to me. Um, I've had this happen at the place I work. We use nail guns. And um, uh, we had a, I've had a couple of situations where a guy, and by the way, nail guns always do what you tell them to do. It's really a good feature. They shoot nails. And the trouble is that if you aren't thinking about what you're doing, they shoot nails in bad places. And so I pulled a nail out of a guy's leg and a guy out of a guy's hand. And it's a, it's a painful prospect. I don't like doing it, but someone has to do it. But what would happen? Just, just for a moment. What would happen if I said, hey, you know, I really, I really like you, and I'm sorry you're in pain. So what I'm going to do, it's going to hurt you way too much for me to pull the nail out. So let's just leave the nail. I'm going to put a Band-Aid on it. I'll put hydrogen peroxide on it. We'll put some Neosporin on it. We'll do some things that will hopefully combat infection, but we're leaving the nail because it's going to hurt if I pull this thing out. So would that be a good choice? I'm just like, hey, I mean, just leave the nail. Try not to bump it because it really hurts if you bump it. But, uh, but, you know, the nail stays. So Elijah doesn't do that. He could have just gone and said, come on, Lord, send the rain. But instead he said, let's deal with the problem. Let's deal with the nail in this situation. We have national sin that must be dealt with first. And so he calls for a contest of 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of the Asherah, the grove, where this female goddess was housed. However, you notice in the storyline, the 400 prophets of the Asherah never showed. Uh, were they a little afraid of what God might do? I don't know, but for some reason they never did. But the 450 prophets of Baal, in fact, did come. And so as Elijah gathers them, he gathers them probably to a place about like this. This is on Mount Carmel. This is a large open spot. So within that craggy mountain range, 1,724 feet high at its highest point, is a large open place where you could gather thousands of people. That's probably, this is the best guess as to where that actually occurred. You can see there'd be a lot of room there. And there's also a lot of visibility. So whatever is going to happen next is going to happen where everybody can see it up on the mountain. So with that, Elijah says, he says, uh, he sets up the contest in verse 20. Ahab sent all the people of Israel, gathered all the prophets together at Mount Carmel per Elijah's demand. And Elijah came near to all the people and said, this is what he said to them, how long will you go limping between two different opinions? How long will you hop from one side to the other? How long will you shift your weight from the Lord, he is God, to Baal, he is our God? The Lord, he is God, Baal, he is our God. How long will you shift your opinions from one side to the other how long will you halt between two opinions? How long will you limp between these two different ideas? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. And the people, for once, did something really smart. They kept their mouths shut. 
they didn't answer him a word. Verse 22, Elijah said to the people, I, even I only am left a prophet of the Lord, but Baal's prophets are 450 men. Let two bulls be given to us, and let them choose one bull for themselves, and cut it in pieces, this is verse 23, and lay it on the wood, but put no fire to it. And I will prepare the other bull and lay wood upon it, but put no fire to it. And you call upon the name of your God, Baal, and I will call upon the name of the Lord, the God who answers by fire. He's God. Now, This looked like a pretty good idea to the prophets of Baal because actually Baal was often featured as having a lightning bolt. So he was related to fire, right? This would be a pretty good deal. I mean, Baal should be able to, if there's any prayer that Baal should be able to answer, this would be it. So, okay, all right, we'll take it. And they begin the process of calling for fire. So it says in verse 25, of chapter 18, Elijah, Elijah told them to prepare that bull. Verse 26, they took the bull that was given them, they prepared it, called upon the name of Baal from morning until noon, saying, Oh, Baal, answer us. But there was only silence, there was no voice, no one answered. And they limped around the altar. By the way, it's the same idea here as what's going on with the people limping between opinions. They're, They're limping around the altar in some kind of an ecstatic dance. They limped around the altar that they had made. And they cried aloud to their God. So Elijah is saying at about noon, cry aloud for he's a God. Either he's musing or he's relieving himself or he's on a journey or perhaps he's asleep and must be awakened. So they get really excited at this point. And not only do they cry aloud, but they cut themselves with swords and lances until their blood is flowing out like some personal offering to their God. But Baal's a false god, and he can't answer prayers, even if he's featured with a lightning bolt. So Elijah says in verse 30 to all the people, come near to me. And all the people came near to him, and he repaired the altar of the Lord that had been thrown down. He took 12 stones according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob to whom the word of the Lord came, saying, Israel shall be your name. And with the stones, he built an altar in the name of the Lord and made a trench about the altar as great as would contain two seahs of seed. And he put the wood in order and cut the bull in pieces and laid it on the wood. And he said, fill four jars with water and pour it on the burnt offering and on the wood. Let's get it wet. By the way, there was a spring up here. So in case you're wondering where in a time of great drought they would get this much water, there was a spring from which they could get it. So yes, in fact, this does work. So they got these four jars of water and Elijah says, do it again. And then he says, do it again. Three times they pour water on the offering and then he prays this very simple prayer. And I want you to notice the structure of his very simple prayer that he prays in verse 36. He says, O Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel, that God is the Lord, and that I am your servant, and that I have done all these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord, answer me, that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God, and that you have turned their hearts back. That's the prayer. That's it. That's all he prayed. And get this. Fire immediately falls from heaven. And it doesn't just consume the sacrifice. It consumes the sacrifice, the wood, the stones, the dust, and all the water. God answers immediately by fire. 
Well, we just knew that Elijah was a man of prayer. He prayed for a, a boy to be raised from the dead, and God heard him and answered his prayer immediately. And here he prays for fire, and God answers immediately. Fire falls from heaven. They say, go get those 450 prophets of Baal. We're going to deal with the nail in the hand here. We're going to pull the nail out of the leg, and they need to be slaughtered down at the brook, brook Kishon, which they then did. This didn't deal with the whole problem, did it? But it at least made a first attack on the major problem that was causing the pain and the distress and the discouragement and the judgment to fall upon the people of God. That's the story of fire falling from heaven. And it's really one of the most exciting stories, I think, in the whole Old Testament. But, again, remember, it's a story within a story. How did the story begin? Go see Ahab and tell him something. I am about to send rain. I want you to look over at what happens next as Elijah prays again. Elijah said to Ahab, go up and eat and drink, for there's a sound of rushing of rain. If you uh, looked at the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament, it actually says there's the sound of the, the feet of rain. Kind of a neat picture, isn't it? You can hear the feet of rain running in. And, um, and then Elijah goes back up on the mountain. He tells Ahab, go eat and drink. There's the sound of feet of rain coming. And he goes and prays. But I want you to notice how he prays this time. It's a little different than we anticipate from a man who prays and seems to have a direct connection with God. He bows himself down on the earth. He puts his face between his knees and he says to his servant, go up now and look toward the sea. Remember that Mount Carmel stands between the Mediterranean Sea and the Jezreel Valley. So he's telling his servant, go look toward the sea and tell me what you see. And he comes back and he says, I don't see anything. That's a problem because we've just made an announcement to a king who hates Elijah. That rain's coming and it's not. It's not coming. What happened here? Are the phone lines overloaded? Or, or what's taking place? What's going on here? Why wouldn't God answer? He, in fact, told me in verse 1, you do this, I'm going to send rain. So he knows God wants to send rain. He goes up to pray about it, and God doesn't send it. So Elijah does the only thing he can do, and he prays again. And he says, go back and look and tell me what you see. And he comes back again, time two. There's nothing, Elijah. No sign of rain. The feet of rain you boast about are not on the move. I can't hear the sound of the march. And he does this seven times. Guys, he does it seven times. While the wicked king who hates him, who's sought through all the neighboring territories and taken oaths of the foreign kings saying, you haven't, you haven't harbored Elijah, have you? He's up here on the mountain alone with just his servant and God, who promised to send rain, isn't sending it. You ever been there? I mean, God just answered by fire. He could have done it, couldn't he? Couldn't God have answered? The God who answers by fire, he's God. Elijah was right. But why, when then Elijah prays for rain, does he not answer? Does it take seven times? And I want to show you just a few very brief things in the remaining time that we have here this morning about what Elijah's prayer was really like, because it's the prayer of every person who's waiting on God. And there are two things that do not characterize our prayers 
when we wait for God. And the first is, Elijah didn't try to impress God with his personal devotion. Now, now the prophets of Baal did, right? Remember what they did? They were jumping around the altar. Eventually, they're cutting themselves, bleeding all over by their personal devotion, somehow to show God, their God, the false God, that they were really committed. And so as a result of their commitment, surely God would hear them. You don't find that in the story of Elijah praying either for fire or for rain. And then we notice that he didn't try to get God's attention through repeated words. Those prophets of Baal cried out from morning till noon, O Baal, answer us. O Baal, answer us. O Baal, answer us. Baal, answer us. We're warned very specifically in the New Testament that God doesn't like just chanted repetitions. It doesn't please him. It says that he's not a God who's really worthy of our trust. So Elijah, whatever he was doing during these seven times, was not just chanting some kind of a repeated chant, heaping up empty, vain words, like it says in the book of Matthew, as Jesus is reproving the Pharisees. He, he doesn't heap up empty words. But he does do four very significant things that we want to note this morning. He did pray by connecting with the real God. You know, the first thing that we have to do when we're going to look at praying in a time of waiting is are we praying to the right God? It's easier to talk to the doctor. Really. It's easier maybe even to discuss things with a difficult boss. But praying to the real God, not the God of our minds, not the God who seems to be in charge, not the second cause God, but the first cause God, praying to him, connecting with him, is the most important thing. And interestingly enough, there's really only one way to get to this God. Jesus says in John chapter 14 and in verse 6, a very well-known passage, he says, I, Jesus, am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. So I can tell you this. If you have not come to God by Jesus, whatever the God is that you're praying to is not the real one. Because the real God, is only known through Jesus. So Elijah was praying to the real God. Again, the prophets of Baal could have cried that way for seven days, and it didn't matter, right? Because they were praying to a God who was a false God. But Elijah knew that he was praying to the real God. He was connected to the real God, and his prayer would be heard. And then he expected answers from a foreign power. I want you to understand that it was not Elijah's prayer that somehow was the thing that made, in one sense, that the power came from. It made the difference, but it wasn't the thing from which the power came. The power came from God. Elijah was just the conduit through which that power came. And then he not only expected answers from a foreign power, but he also persisted in the promise of God. Remember that Elijah knew exactly what God wanted to do. The first verse, chapter 18, he had a direct promise. As the Lord God of Israel lives, before whom I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. That was chapter 17. In the first part of chapter 18, after many days, the word of the Lord came to Elijah, saying, Go show yourself to Ahab. I will send rain. I think this is one of the places we often go amiss when we're waiting, to be quite honest. We pray 
based on what we think God wants to do. It's really easy to do that. And even very well-meaning people, even we, pray according to what we think God wants to do. But Elijah knew what God wanted to do. So if you really want to be able to wait for God, it's going to be super important that you wait knowing what he wants to do. You say, but I don't know what he wants to do. That's where Romans chapter 8 comes in with great power because we're told that the Holy Spirit himself intercedes for us with words that can't be uttered when we don't know how to pray. So we can say, oh God, what do you want to do in this situation and expect that the Holy Spirit will in fact answer. He didn't just persist in the promise of God, though he humbled himself under God's hand. You see this posture, his head between his knees. He is saying, the power, oh God, is not from me. The power must be from you. And so he prayed and he prayed and he prayed again seven times until finally the servant comes back a seventh time and says, behold, a little cloud like a man's hand is rising from the sea. And he, Elijah, said, go up and say to Ahab, prepare your chariot and go down lest the rain stop you. And in a little while the heavens grew black with clouds and wind and there was a great rain. And Ahab rode and went to Jezreel and the hand of the Lord is on Elijah. And he gathered up his garment and ran before Ahab to the entrance of Jezreel. Have we connected to the real God? In your time of waiting, you, you may remember if you were here before, that we talked specifically about the fact that there, there might be an area in which you are experiencing a waiting time with God in your life. I can remember mine. Maybe you can remember yours. Mine hasn't suddenly gone away. Maybe yours has, and that's great. God does answer our prayer. And he does want us to wait for him. But if yours hasn't, it's not a cause for discouragement, but a cause to wait until God has sufficiently manifested that it is his power and his alone. You may, you may remember as you think back to other stories, like the story of Gideon, that God wants all the credit. So why was Elijah having to wait at this point in time when he didn't wait for fire? We aren't told, but we can be sure of this. God wanted to make sure that it was very clear this was not just a happenstance accident. Oh, it started raining. He wanted to make sure that there was no credit that could be given just to Elijah. I pray and it does things. He wanted to make sure that the stage was set in which he would most clearly be seen. Maybe God's doing that in your life. Maybe he's doing that in my life. Maybe our waiting time is a chance for us to align with God so that we can really say, I expect to hear God answer. I think that that's an important part of this. Do you really expect God to answer? The book of James, in the first chapter, talks about something that we all need. It's called wisdom. And he says, anyone can ask for it. You may ask, and you may get it if you ask, believing that you'll receive it. But if you don't, frankly, don't bother to ask. Don't bother to ask, because God says you're a double-minded man, unstable in all your ways. There is no wisdom for you. It's for those who call on God and believe that he'll give it. What Elijah did not do during these seven times of praying for rain was ever doubt that God would do what he said 
If we had time this morning, and we don't, I would love to take you to the fifth chapter of the book of James. And look, this, interestingly, is the one thing that is marked out in the book of James as pertaining to the life of Elijah. In fact, it says that Elijah was a man of similar passions to us. He was made like we're made. But he did one thing that made, set him apart. He prayed. He prayed. And then it makes this, James makes this axiomatic statement. He says, the prayer, the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. It, it gets a lot done. And he's not talking about the fire. He's talking about the rain. After waiting, holding on, believing God, not giving up, persisting in prayer when it seems that nothing else can help. In fact, nothing else can help. It's at that point, having waited, that God delights to answer his people. And to demonstrate that prayer is effective, that waiting on him is enough for each of us.